0: Sexual abuse happens in all parts of society, from individual households to schools and sports teams, and across all other institutions, including but not limited to religious institutions. On today's episode, we chose to focus on sexual abuse within the Catholic Church. It was 20 years ago when the crisis hit the mainstream media. There were news articles left and right about priests in various locations across the U.S., who are being accused of sexual abuse against minors.
1: In our last episode, we talked extensively about some of the problems with underreporting of sexual abuse. This episode takes that conversation further by discussing what we know about sexual abuse within the Catholic Church. Sexual abuse occurs within all institutions, religious or otherwise, throughout the U.S. When we talk about institutional abuse, we are referring to abuse that occurs within an organizational context. Usually, these organizations have a structure in which there is some sort of mentoring or nurturing relationship between adults and youths, in which the adults hold some sort of position of power. So, these institutions can include schools, childcare settings, athletic organizations, or religious organizations. We discuss the Catholic Church specifically because it is one of the only institutions to address sexual abuse with national level studies.
0: Dr. Karen Terry a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, was tasked with leading the National Study of Sexual Abuse in the Catholic Church. We spent an hour talking with Dr. Terry about her research, including how the study came about, how her research team collected data, and what the findings from this research tell us about sexual abuse in the church and the people who committed it. As always, we recognize that some of the material we cover can be challenging and confronting, This is especially so if you or someone you know has experienced sexual abuse by clergy. Please listen with care. It is also okay to tune out, listen with a friend, or listen in short chunks. I'm Dr. Alyssa Ackerman.
1: And I'm Dr. Alexa Sardina. Join us as we take you Beyond Fear.
0: On today's episode, we are having a conversation with Dr. Karen Terry, who is a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. She holds a doctorate in criminology from Cambridge University, and her primary research interest is sexual offending and victimization and sex offender policy. Her current research focuses on abuse of children in an institutional setting, and she was the principal investigator for two studies on sexual abuse of minors by Catholic priests in the United States. And I am super, super excited to have Karen on our podcast today. For those of you who don't know, in the first episode of the podcast, I talked about how when I first started in this work, I talked about this really cool class that I took when I was in graduate school, and it was Dr. Terry, who was the professor of that class. So to be here, like 16 years later, having this conversation is just really exciting to me on so many levels. So Karen, thank you so much for agreeing to come and talk to us today about your work.
2: Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: As Alyssa said, Dr. Terry has been a criminologist at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. There are a lot of different topics that you could become interested in as a young criminal justice student, but what got you interested in studying sexual abuse?
2: It's a good question. My interest developed really when I was an undergrad, and I was studying psychology and also criminology. And I studied abroad my junior year and ended up working with a professor who was studying
0: pedophilia. It is important to clarify here that pedophilia is a psychiatric diagnosis, and as such implies that a pedophile is someone who has a mental illness rather than a sexual orientation or attraction. There is significant disagreement around the use of this terminology. We find that it is more appropriate to use the term minor attracted person, which also aligns with our commitment to use person first language.
2: So then later when I was doing my PhD, I was also in England, and they had started a treatment program for sexual offenders in a variety of prisons across the country. No one had done any evaluation work of these treatment programs at that time. So it became a really good opportunity for me to go back into studying that area that I was interested in. And so I was really started looking at cognitive distortions of offenders who were going through treatment programs and how those changed over time as they went through the treatment program.
1: Cognitive distortions are a type of automatic thought process that develops and can help a perpetrator minimize the seriousness of their behavior. It is important to note that these thought processes are not unique to people who sexually abuse. Anyone may use cognitive distortions in their everyday thinking patterns. We will actually discuss this topic more in detail during episode four.
2: I started getting more involved in issues related to sex offender policies, in particular registration notification and civil commitment, and then eventually started doing the work on institutional abuse.
0: That is so much more of a better answer than the one that I gave, which was I took this really cool class by Dr. <laughs> Terry when I was in graduate school.
2: I like that answer.
0: <laughs> I just remember coming in with my laptop and my little digital recorder and like so excited oh. to sit in this class. Right. But more seriously, it, you know, it helped me to understand myself a lot better. And then because of the work that you did, Karen really got me interested in studying registration and notification policies. And that's a whole other episode of this podcast. Yes. But really, I attribute so much of what I do now. It is because of you. And I just loved your answer about the work that you do.
2: It's an honor to hear you say that.
0: So if you could tell us a little bit then about... How you got involved in work on sexual abuse in the Catholic Church more specifically, and maybe talk a little bit about like the timing and the context of how that came about, what was going on in the world at the time.
2: Sure. In 2002, this was really the pinnacle of the crisis in the Catholic Church, because this is when everyone's really beginning to understand in the U.S. the extent of abuse within the church. And there were articles posted every day in the Boston Globe and the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times and many other papers, particularly around the priests of John Gagan. And what happened is the body of bishops got together at their annual meeting and said, understood that they really needed to address this problem. So they created a charter for the protection of children and young people. And within that, they created a couple of entities, one of which was the National Review Board and also the Office of Child Youth Protection. As part of the mandate of the Office of Child Youth Protection, they wanted to identify someone who could study this problem so that they could understand it more. What the president did is he got together a number of faculty members who had a general area of interest related to sexual offending or victimization. And we ultimately um, designed this study on the nature and scope. They wanted to understand why this problem was happening in the Catholic Church. But they said, before we can do that we need to know what the problem is. We don't know what the nature and the scope of the problem is. We don't know how big this problem is, what it looks like across the U.S. So the first thing we need is to conduct a study on the nature and scope of the problem of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. They hired us to do that study. And ultimately, we got a very large group of students to assist us with that. As you know, Alyssa, we had some doctoral students, master's students, undergraduate students. And it was a large team of people who worked together to gather this information
1: for the church. Okay, So you touched on a lot of some of the questions we had about how the project got started and exactly who was involved, but what kinds of data ultimately did you ask for or were you looking at and compiling?
2: This was a really challenging study because there was no way to get all the information that we wanted in the time frame that we wanted to get it from the universe of diocese in the U.S. We worked together for a while to really create what we thought was methodologically the best way to collect this data. So what we ended up doing is we sent three different surveys to every diocese in the United States. And one was a general diocesan survey, giving us information about how large the diocese was, what region it was in, and overall how many priests had allegations of abuse and how many individuals had reported that abuse happened to them. And then we had what we called a cleric survey. And that was a survey that every diocese was supposed to fill out for every priest who had an allegation of abuse. And then there was also what we called a victim survey, which was for every person who reported an allegation of abuse, the diocese had to fill that out. And that included more demographic information about the survivors, as well as, you know, the context of the abuse and how it happened and when it happened and how long it occurred and so forth. We also, to ensure the greatest confidentiality possible, had those surveys sent to a third party that then stripped all identifying information and we got it with just a coding for the diocese. So we did not know which diocese it came from. So that way we were able to maintain confidentiality for all individuals involved and get as much information from the diocese as possible.
0: Simply put, a diocese is a geographical area subject to the jurisdiction of a Catholic bishop. At the time of the Nature and Scope study, there were 202 dioceses in the United States, and the research team received responses from 195 of those dioceses, representing 99% of all diocesan priests in ministry. We also wanted to reiterate that the three surveys were all filled out by the diocese. Individual people who reported abuse to the church did not fill these out. Rather, the survey was filled out by the diocese and included all information about the victim in the report. Can you maybe say a little bit about why that confidentiality is so important?
2: Well, for one thing, no one would have participated if they were not guaranteed confidentiality. Honestly, I think in, you know, in a lot of studies, especially those of a sensitive nature, the confidentiality is very, very important for a number of reasons. For those who had allegations of abuse, many of them were never heard in court. It was an allegation that was in a personnel file. At that point, you want to protect the confidentiality of the individual who has an allegation against them because those facts have not been heard in any kind of court. In addition to that, you have some what I would call victim information. And even though there's no names or anything like that, if there were a way to connect, you know, that there were, say, a 12-year-old boy in a certain year in a certain diocese who was abused by someone, you might be able to link it back to who that individual is. So again, it's protecting the confidentiality on every level. Plus, our job was not to say, reach out and identify particular dioceses and shame them for how they were handling it. It was literally just to find out what the extent of the abuse crisis was and what it looked like. So what is the shape of this? What are the offenses that were being committed and when and under what, in what context?
0: Can you tell us a little bit about those findings about what the problem was?
2: Sure. Like I said, we started to collect data in 2002, and we released our report in February of 2004. We collected data over a year. We asked the diocese for information from 1950 to 2002. So again, it's several years later, and I can tell you in a bit what we know now compared to what we know then. But what we found in our study was that... Uh, Just over 4,000 individuals had allegations of abuse against nearly 11,000 youths. That represented about 4% of all priests in ministry in the time from 1950 to 2002. And what was really interesting to us is that it was evenly distributed across the U.S., okay, in all regions, in all Catholic regions, as well as from the small diocese to the larger diocese, and they were all roughly 3 to 6% roughly 3-6% to of the smallest group of dioceses, up to the biggest group of dioceses, as well as across all regions.
1: And so it was very, very consistent. As Dr. Terry mentioned, between 1950 and 2002, they found that there were approximately 4,000 priests and 11,000 victims in the Catholic Church. Again, these were victims that came forward and whose accounts were recorded by the Church. There is reason to believe that the number of victims may actually be greater than that. But it is interesting that the pattern of abuse was consistent over time and location. In other words, the abuse was distributed evenly across the United States and across the different types of dioceses.
2: What we saw was a rise in abuse cases in the 1960s and 1970s, peaked in the late 1970s, early 1980s, and then there was a steep decline. We found that to be very, very interesting, but it was a finding that we saw really at the outset and it continued and that did not shift. And we also found a number of interesting things about the individuals who perpetrated abuse. So for instance, there's all age ranges, but many waited several years after they were ordained to commit that first act of abuse. And it happened to coincide in many cases, it was largely parish priests and it coincided with when they moved into their own parish. There was very little oversight at that time because they were alone in the parish residence and had a lot of opportunity. In terms of those who were abused, the majority were male. So 81% of abuse victims were male. And that was something that was striking and that it was different than the profile you saw in other types of institutions. And it led to a lot of questions. It led to a lot of questions from the public and also us, you know, so... Why was it that they were abusing largely male victims? The average age was 11 to 14 years old. Very few were much younger than that. Smallest percentage was younger than that. The majority were in that 11 to 14-year-old age range and then some older teenagers as well.
0: So that's really interesting that... um... You know, so many of the cases in the church were against young boys. Can you talk a little bit about how... That compares to what we know about sexual abuse more generally?
2: You know, we see slightly different profile in the church than we see about abuse generally. Certainly there's a higher percentage of males who are abused in a church context. In the general population, you see more females than males who are abused. Generally, we'll understand that there is a significant amount of underreporting, and we know that males do underreport even more than females. We still know that there is a higher percentage of females who are abused in the general population than males.
0: It is pretty clear that priests who abused minors did so against those whom they had immediate and convenient access to. Again, 81% of minors who were abused were male, and the majority of them were between 11 and 14 years old. This is different from abuse that occurs in the general population because priests had more access to boys and therefore more opportunity than they did girls. One possible explanation for this is that until 1994, girls could not act as altar servers. Prior to this time, only boys could, and most of those boys were in early adolescence.
1: What were some of the issues that you ran into in terms of underreporting or trying to accurately measure the incidence and prevalence of abuse within the church?
2: Well, it's such a challenging question because we know the number that we published was four thousand three hundred and ninety-two priests had allegations of abuse. We know that's not the exact number of priests that are gonna have allegations of abuse. We know there's gonna be more because we know there's significant amount of underreporting. And so one of the things that we really wanted to understand though was those patterns. So what do the patterns look like? We know we're not going to have an exact number. We know that someone may not be reporting in one case, or there might be a false allegation in a different case. Our goal is not to say this is the exact number. And this is exactly what is known. And of course, in the last 18 years, many more cases have been reported. And we know a lot more about what is happening today. And, you know, just to let you know a little bit about that, the peak of the crisis has not shifted. It is still in 60s, 70s, early 80s to mid 80s. And then there was a sharp decrease. And there is still, of course, abuse happening. There's abuse that happens everywhere in every institution, even outside of institutions in the family and so forth. And we're not going to eliminate it. So we know that more abuse is going to occur. But I don't think we're going to see the peak that we saw in the 70s and 80s, and all the data indicates that that peak has passed.
0: So I wonder if you could walk us through some of the major findings of the Causes and Context study, right? That came out several years Mm -hmm. after the Nature and Scope Mm -hmm. study. Mm -hmm. And so maybe if you could talk a little bit about some of the characteristics of institutional abuse within the church, uh, anything unique about the abuse by priests, so on and so forth.
2: So we wanted to know exactly what you just asked, Alyssa. Are are priests unique? Are they different? Are they the same or different than other types of sexual offenders? So we gathered data from a variety of sources, too many to probably explain in one podcast. What we found is that priests who had allegations of abuse against minors were no more likely to have any diagnosable mental illness. They were not Any different on IQ tests. They were not any different on any of the personality tests that they were given. You know, there were very, very few differences between the priests who had the allegations of abuse against minors and the general population of priests. That told us a lot. These are not individuals who have serious psychological disorders that are trying to join the priesthood, and we could be screening them out. Instead, what we're seeing is that because of some other types of factors that might make them vulnerable to abuse and some types of negative thoughts and feelings and emotions that might trigger some type of abusive behavior, we have to be aware of that. Again, these are not individuals who are going into the priesthood with serious psychological disorders. There's not a particular screening test that you can use to screen them out. You know, So that was something that was very interesting to us when we looked at all of that clinical data.
1: As Karen just said, in the church or outside of it, people that abuse are typically no different from anyone else. There are usually factors unrelated to mental illness or or intelligence that lead an individual to sexually abuse.
2: Another big question that a lot of people had after the Nature and Scope study was, is this a problem that is more prevalent among priests who identify as homosexual? What we did is we also looked at that clinical data to try to understand, is it more likely for individuals who identify as homosexual to abuse children? And what we found is, There was not a link between homosexuality and child sexual abuse. The priests who had allegations of abuse were largely what we term generalists. They didn't target particular types of individual youth. For instance, very few of them targeted 10-year-old boys. Instead, what they tended to do was abuse those that they had access to. We also found that in the clinical files, 80% of those who had allegations of abuse against minors also had some type of sexual behavior with adults what you see is a lot of crossover. They were acting out sexually. Sometimes it was with minors, sometimes it was with adults, but it was not that they were targeting a particular type of individual and seeking them out and trying to get those individuals alone over the course of the priesthood. Having said that, There were some very serious offenders in the sample. We found that 3.5% of the priests in our Nature and Scope study were responsible for 26% of the victimization. And those are what we called our serial offenders. But those serial offenders were a unique group because the majority of individuals in our Nature and Scope study had one allegation of abuse.
0: 3.5% of priests in the sample for these studies were responsible for 26% of the victimization. It is striking how similar this is to what we know about offenders in the general population. The general population of people who sexually offend are not repeat or serial offenders. One of the things that always struck me, that continues to strike me when I see media accounts of any form of sexual abuse, is sort of the particular words that media outlets use. Yes. So could you maybe break down or unpack for us the big term that we heard for years and years and years about the pedophile priest and why that is so problematic?
2: Pedophile priest, yep. This is an issue that we wanted to understand as well. What we wanted to understand is, is there some reality to this term pedophile priest? And what we found is that about 5% of the individuals who had allegations of abuse in the Catholic Church had diagnoses as pedophiles. Yes, there are some, but that is a small percentage of the overall group of individuals who have allegations against children. So the majority of priests who had allegations of abuse are not pedophiles. And that's really important. You really need to understand who the priests are that are committing these acts of abuse in order to appropriately respond to them.
1: Sure. You touched on what I would consider one of the biggest misconceptions, which was that the priests in the Catholic Church were acting out on male victims because they were somehow suppressed and that most of them would be gay. But what were some of the other misconceptions about the sexual abuse happening in the Catholic Church during this time?
2: there's a misconception that you know all priests are abusers when even though today, looking at all the allegations that have come forward in the last decade and a half after our studies, the estimate now is that about 5% of priests in ministry from 1950 to 2020 have allegations of abuse. And even if you consider underreporting, the large majority of priests don't have allegations of abuse. It has really... I think our view of priests changed a lot in 2002 when all those reports started coming forward and people started to view them really all skeptically. So that's another misconception. I think you just have to keep those numbers in mind. A lot of people ask us about celibacy. Is celibacy a problem? Is that what caused this? You know, we don't collect data that shows yes, celibacy is a problem or no, it's not. But certainly what we can say is abuse occurs in every single institution in families and everything else, celibacy exists in the Catholic Church, but not these other institutions. So if you look at something, for instance, like the Boy Scouts, they're very similar numbers in terms of rates and percentage, given what we know. You know, there is no celibacy requirement in the Boy Scout. What is your argument there? Even though we don't have data, I don't even know how you would collect that data that shows celibacy is not the problem, or it is the problem. What we can say is when you look at abuse within all of these other contexts, you still have pretty similar levels of abuse without that celibacy requirement.
1: Was there anything unique about the abuse happening within the Catholic Church, or was it pretty much consistent with the types of abuse happening in other institutions?
2: I think that there are some things that are unique about the church because it has a unique structure. And because of its unique structure, it's a hierarchical organization, you know, where everyone reports to the Pope, but it's very decentralized. What that means is that each... Diocese is essentially its own entity and there's very little oversight within that diocese. And again, when you get to the parish priests and they're out at their own parish, there's very little oversight there. And what that does is it leads to, you know, that lack of oversight leads to opportunities for abuse to occur. And it also on a personal level leads to other issues that we saw like isolation and loneliness and other types of, I'd say, self-care issues, um, you know, amongst the
1: priests. Institutional abuse is plagued by issues related to poor avenues for reporting sexual abuse and a lack of procedures for responding appropriately to accusations. Researchers have identified four barriers to reporting sexual abuse within institutions. The first is a lack of policies and procedures that would allow reporting and investigations of sexual abuse. The second is a view of the problem as individualistic rather than systemic. The third is a lack of transparency within the institution. And finally, the general belief system that surrounds the institution is also a factor. We see this in the Catholic Church example as well as in the recent USA Gymnastics and Boy Scout scandals.
0: Can you say anything about what can be done to prevent institutional sexual abuse? Are there organizations that are doing it right? What has the church done? I know you and I have written about some of the ways that prevention strategies can work, but if you could say a little bit more about that, that'd be great.
2: Sure. Almost every organization at this point has looked within itself and said, hey, we've got to do something about this. We recognize that sexual abuse of minors is a problem. And so almost every organization at this point has implemented some kind of education and training model for members. In the church, you have safe environment training that is available to really any volunteer all families within the churches if they want it, as well as the priests themselves. And so you have certain types of education and training that are so, so critical, not just for potential abusers, but for other people who may see abuse that is happening or grooming situations that might happen so that hopefully you can stop that before it does happen. So education and training is absolutely critical and that is consistent across almost every organization. And then there are a lot of steps that you can take to reduce opportunities for abuse to occur. And that's that situational crime prevention that is so, so critical and is critical for crime generally. And it's, it's absolutely critical for um, sexual offenses in particular.
0: As Karen mentioned, situational crime prevention strategies are critical. It is important to state that in no way is this putting the onus on any actual or potential victim. Rather, it is on individuals and institutions to enact situational crime prevention strategies to reduce opportunities for abuse to occur. There are four main situational crime prevention techniques that can be used to prevent sexual abuse in institutions. Well, really anywhere. And we will provide a link to more information on situational crime prevention techniques on our website. But for now, the four main techniques are increasing effort, increasing risk, Controlling prompts and reducing permissibility.
2: So, if you think back to the fact that 40% of individuals who are abused by priests were abused in the parish residence, that is almost half of all individuals abused by priests were abused in the home of the priest. And there was no oversight there. And just by changing one thing, you can't be alone with the priest. You can't have any one-on-one interaction. That alone would reduce abuse significantly. It would reduce abuse opportunities. So it's thinking about how do you reduce those opportunities for abuse to occur? And we see that absolutely everywhere. So in the Boy Scouts, it's really the Boy Scouts who coined the term too deep leadership. They said, You can't have any one-on-one interactions between an adult and a youth. And you have to have at least two adults present. And there are other organizations that have picked up on that terminology as well. For instance, the U.S. Center for Safe Sport, which oversees all abuse allegations for all sports, that fall under the U.S. Olympic Committee. They've created safe sport guidelines, and every sport has to adopt their own guidelines that are consistent with those overall U.S. Center for Safe Sport guidelines. And they also say that too deep leadership is mandatory. So again, even a sporting coach, whether it's a team sport, an individual sport, or anything, is not allowed to be alone with an athlete. And that includes travel, includes being alone in a locker room, anything like that anything to reduce the opportunity for abuse to occur. You know, when you think about the education and training, and then you think about reducing opportunities, right there, you're going to drastically reduce the likelihood of abuse happening.
1: So I think we're reaching the end of our interview, but I think that people will want to sort of delve into this topic a little bit more on their own. So are there any books or websites that you would recommend to our listeners to check out if they're interested?
2: Well, I think if you're interested in understanding more about abuse within an institutional context. I think the most thorough place to go is the Royal Commission reports from Australia. There are 17 volumes and many, many research reports that evaluate Uh, sexual abuse within an institutional context. And it's really fascinating. They've done a tremendous amount of research. And of course, there are a lot of sources in the US as well and other countries, but that definitely is so, so thorough. They've got a lot of smaller individual research reports that talk about each of these individual topics. So who are the abusers? Who is abused? What is this institutional context? How does the Catholic Church compare to other institutions, at least as best we can tell? Things like that. Really, really interesting as well as the reports from their findings throughout all of Australia as well.
0: Well, this was so much fun. I have been looking forward to having this conversation with you for weeks and 16 years of knowing you. Yes. Like, it feels like yesterday that I was sitting in that classroom with you.
2: It does. You say 16 years and it's a little scary. But um.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's unbelievable to me. But it was really just so cool to have you on this interview today. And I really, really appreciate it. Appreciate you. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you so much. It's, It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Alyssa. I'm so glad that you guys are doing these podcasts.
0: Thank you.
1: We really appreciate it. Thank you so much.
2: You're welcome.
1: Thank you for listening to Beyond Fear, the sex crimes podcast. Please join us next time when we explore the various explanations for why people sexually offend. Remember, you can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and other podcasting platforms, and on our website, www.beyondfearpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Fearcrimes, on Instagram at Beyond Fear Podcast, and like and follow our Facebook group called Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast. We would like to thank Christopher Antico, our sound editor, and Danielle Keys for our podcast artwork.